I am Ben Doc Askins, the psychedelic science war storyteller, and this is the Anti-Hero's Journey Podcast. Hey everybody, Doc here. If you're enjoying the podcast and you want it to be possible for me to continue to make it, then I'm going to need you to go to my store at antiheroesjourney.com and buy my audiobook and my ebook in one of the many translations available, or go to shop and pick out some of my stuff t shirts and hats and pet bandanas and bikinis and scented candles and all sorts of nonsense, all the things you could ever want and never need. And get 10% off with the code, all caps, FRIEND10. Go to antiheroesjourney.com and use the code, all caps, FRIEND10 to get 10% off anything that you could ever want there. I appreciate your support. Thank you. I love you. Goodbye. What's up, all you anti-heroes out there? Doc Askins here, bringing another podcast episode to you. I've got a special guest, Jennifer Chesick is the author of the Psilocybin Handbook for Women. She is an award-winning freelance science and medical journalist, editor, and fact-checker, and her work has appeared in several national publications, including the Washington Post. Chesick earned her Master of Science in Journalism from Northwestern University's Medill. She currently teaches in the journalism and publishing programs at Belmont University, leads various workshops at the literary nonprofit The Porch, and serves as the managing editor for the literary magazine Shift. Find her work at jenniferchesick.com and follow her on the socials at Jen Chesick, C-H-E-S-A-K. Jen, it's a pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's so fun to be here. I'm excited. So this is one of our Q5 podcast formats where I just ask five questions that are some of my favorite questions to ask clients in ketamine-assisted psychotherapy preparatory sessions when they're getting ready for a medicine session. We're not doing any of those sorts of things today. We're just using that as the stretcher for our conversation. So getting things rolling with question number one, Jen, what is your story? <laughs> Great question. Yeah, so you covered a lot of it in the bio. I'm a medical journalist and fact checker, manuscript editor and adjunct instructor, and I love doing all of those things. It seems like I'm constantly juggling a lot of balls, but I think that's what I what I love about being a freelancer. I wanted to be a journalist since I was 10 years old. I had a fifth grade teacher who just sort of really encouraged that, and I ran with it, and, and it was the best thing ever. So I was the editor of my high school paper, worked on newspapers in college, got into broadcasting. I was a television reporter in like what I would call a former life. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't really a former life, but it feels like a long time ago. Now I focus mostly on the written word, but absolutely love it. And as you noted, I just recently wrote the Psilocybin Handbook for Women, launched in June, published by Ulysses Press and distributed by Simon & Schuster. And that has been sort of the journey of this, the past year for me. Really, I got the book deal in June of last year, and then it came out in June of this year. So my foray into psilocybin and the research related to that and in terms of women's health, especially Actually, was kind of a very deep dive crash course, but I went I went far into it and really enjoyed the the writing process. In my 
personal life. I love to garden. I love to read. I mean, you have to convince me to put the book down at night. <laughs> my, when I was a child, my mom used to come in and peel it off my face after I, because I'd been reading and then would fall asleep. So I've been an avid reader my whole life. I love to run. And I am a wife, a daughter, a sister, a friend. And I'm not a mother, not in the usual sense, at least. But I do mother our, we have a fennec fox as a pet. We rescued her from a breeder. We just absolutely love her. She's she's getting up there in years right now. She's 13, which is kind of old for a fox. So she's got like old lady fox arthritis and stuff like that. But we love her. And we also care for about, it was it's about nine to 12, depending on the day, feral cats that kind of convened in our yard at one point. And we've been feeding them, obviously, and caring for them. And I trapped, neutered, spayed, and released them. I guess it was last year that that happened because there were so many and I wanted to stop the, the cat population and be a good citizen. And so we did that. And it's been a really rewarding experience because they still hang out in our yard and have become really friendly. So they're not necessarily feral anymore, but we feed them and that brings a lot of joy to my life. So that's me in a nutshell. What a beautiful story. I'm so glad that you were willing to share that with us. Absolutely. I read your book last night. I was telling you before we started recording and I don't typically give books like a wholehearted affirmation and and recommendation very often. I tend to be a very critical reader. And I did have one major piece of criticism for you. It's that I don't think the title of the book is true since it says that it's for women, but I think it's actually for absolutely everyone. So that would be the only piece of criticism that I might bring to what is otherwise an excellent book that should receive as far and wide of a readership as possible. Thank you so much. I will take that criticism and I like that criticism. (laughs) Awesome. Yeah. So your story is beautiful. You share a bit more of your story in the book just to put a hook out there for people who might be interested in hearing more. There's a lot more to Jen than meets the eye or the ear, I guess, here on the podcast. And you should pick up her book and, and listen to what she has to say for sure. That'll roll us into question two, though. Question one's about your story, and it's about memory and history and about who you are and where you're coming from. Question two is, what are your intentions, which is more about your hopes and your dreams and your imagination and where you're planning on going next? Absolutely. So I guess my intentions are really to help raise awareness about how women's health often takes a backseat in the mainstream medical system. You know, just to put that into context, because I I always like to back my stuff up with facts. That's the fact checker in me. So one of the things I love to talk about in relation to this is women were largely excluded from early stage clinical trials until the 1990s, which is really frustrating. And, you know, people wonder what ramifications has that had. And so I like to throw out this timeline that kind of, you know, illustrates that. So in 1998, men got a drug for male sexual dysfunction and that everyone knows that drug, it's Viagra. And, but at that point in time, we didn't even have a complete picture of the clitoris. There's like this, this whole internal structure to the clitoris and people didn't know this, even doctors. And so a female urologist, she studied this and, you know, determined the full, the full structure of the clitoris. So that was 2005. And then fast forward, forward to 2015, that is when women finally got a drug for 
female sexual dysfunction. It's alarming to me that it was 17 years after men got a drug for this. And even more alarming when you consider the statistics on female sexual dysfunction. So people assigned female at birth of reproductive age, about 40% have female sexual dysfunction. But that goes up once people are in that menopause trajectory, that goes up to about 85%, which is, you know, again, why is this not being studied extensively for women? And then, you know, I also have, I have a condition called uh, endometriosis and endometriosis affects one in 10 people assigned female at birth. In rare cases, it can affect the male body as well, but that's pretty rare. So again, 10% of women in the US have endometriosis, or I should say worldwide, 10% worldwide have endometriosis. And the National Institutes of Health in the US here, they designated less than 0.1% of their research funding to this condition that dramatically affects our lives. You know, it's been, for me, it's been seven abdominal surgeries, a lifetime of chronic pain. And this is a condition that's constantly ignored. So women clearly get gaslit at the doctor's office for chronic pain. Um, I This is a, a weird little story, but I went to the ER once for such severe pain related to endometriosis. And a male doctor said to me, you don't take a Ford to a Chevy dealership. And I was like, what? This is my uterus and we're at the ER. We are, what are we talking about here? So, so yes, again, just circling back, my intention is really to, you know, help provide women the, uh, the concepts or the deep dives behind the mechanisms of action that go on in their bodies. So like, how does the menstrual cycle work, you know, along the hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis, or why is menopause linked to weight gain? What are the mechanisms within the body? So that if they are at the doctor's office are getting gaslit or their symptoms are being discounted or poo-pooed, they can push back on that. So that's really a huge intention of mine. And of course, I want to educate people about the, or I should say raise awareness about the benefits of psilocybin, especially for women, women's bodies, or the female body, I should say. You know, I really want to help people feel like it's less of a mystery. I mean, it is a wonderful, magical mystery, hence the name Magic Mushrooms, right? But I am interested in in helping people understand like what goes on during a, a psilocybin journey so that it's less scary, perhaps, especially if somebody's interested in trying it, but they're a little hesitant, you know, because the war on drugs has put a lot of misinformation out there. And so I want to try to erase some of the stigma surrounding using psilocybin or other psychedelics and things like that. So yeah, I guess those are my intentions. Yeah, those are a hell of a set of intentions to set there. That's got some global scope to it for sure. Have you ever read the book Roar by Stacey Sims? No, but I will add it to my list. She's a brilliant researcher who's trying to make up for the difference in athletic performance and training research for females. Uh, you know, like how to plan training around the menstrual cycle and the different developmental stages of life for females. And it's just chock full of brilliant stuff trying to make up for the difference in the lag time that there's been in research into, you know, the female anatomy as it relates to sport. It might be a super interesting read for you. I just wanted yeah, to that will be. drop will a plug in there up. for it. It's a great book. I love it. It was eye-opening for sure. So beautiful intentions set there. The question, the third question is uh, sort of a bridge. It's a bridge between the the past and the future. You're looking at your story and you're looking you're looking back at your story, looking ahead at your intentions. And the way that I like to try to ask people to bridge some of that is to ask them, what are you grateful for? 
Oh, wow. I feel like I just, I have so much gratitude. It was really hard for me to think about this question and how to answer it. So I think top of mind, I'm super grateful for my parents, especially, I mean, as they're getting up there in years and I know that someday they will be gone, but I have so much gratitude for the support and love that they've given me. My mom is like my absolute best friend. We'll talk several times a week for like an hour or longer. And I feel like my, my husband and my dad back home is all always like teasing us about how often we're on the phone in a good good way. It's it's funny, but I just absolutely love her. So I'm so grateful. Grateful for my support system and friends. And one of the things that I realized during my psilocybin journey was I could really feel during this journey, I could feel like threads of light connecting me to all the people that I know and love and whom, you know, love, love me back and care for me. That was something that I experienced during my journey. And it was a lasting thing after my trip. But I think we often know we have a support system out there. But to really feel it in your body was I mean, I just have so much gratitude for that experience and how that has been lasting. And so obviously, I have this gratitude for all those same people that I'm talking about for the support they've given me over the years, the friendship, the laughs, the, the the good times and bad, all of it. I'm so grateful for it. I'm grateful to him. I think I mentioned my husband already. Maybe not, but I'm grateful for him. And then grateful for my my dog. He, he passed away two years ago. It's almost two years now. And I just absolutely, like, he was my soulmate. I don't think my husband will be upset if I say that. But um, he's, he was. And I just, it was really hard to watch him struggle through some health issues, my dog, watch him struggle through some health issues. And then, you know, eventually we had to, you know, put him down at the very, very end. But he I feel like that that experience of of not only having this dog, but his name was Fiverr, but to also the the experience of dealing with his illness, he had congestive heart failure. And then going through that loss, I'm really just grateful for that. That sounds insane to say you're grateful for something like that. But it taught me so much about life and love. I'm going to cry probably, but really, really did. And I think that I, I'm, you know, I'm grateful also for really just my whole life. You know, I've faced a lot of struggles in my life, just, just as everyone has, we go through these difficult times, but I'm actually grateful for those difficult times. And again, that sounds weird, but they've taught me so much about perseverance and resilience. And as I grow older, so I'm 44, almost 45, I think there's a lot of hesitancy for people about aging when they're in middle age. But I really love this, this concept of aging right now, simply because as we get up in years, again, we accumulate all of these experiences and they they teach us so much. And so I'm grateful for some from that. I'm grateful for all that wisdom. I've had a lot of health struggles, you know, chronic health issues, endometriosis, I already mentioned, menstrual migraine, asthma. So I've had chronic illness my whole life. And despite all of that, I I think that I really recognize and am grateful for what the body can do. You know, obviously part of that is being a medical journalist and digging into all of this, the research and, and learning about mechanisms of action. But, you know, if I go out for a run and I'm just like, breathing in the the air of the woods and, you know, heavy breathing because I have asthma, of course, I'm still just grateful for like the fact that I can go run, you know, that's such a, a miraculous thing to me even to this day. So yeah, that's me just full of gratitude over here. Yeah, I can hear in your answer to that question, the amount of 
integration work that's gone into you being able to answer the question that way. Like it's, it's obvious. Strategic navigators reduced my income tax bill by over 50%. These guys save entrepreneurs anywhere from 40 to 60% on their income taxes. Click the link in the description to schedule a call and see what these guys can do for you. If you enjoy paying as much as possible in taxes, then just ignore everything I just said. The ways in which we're able to embody paradoxes like you're describing the ability to be, you know, like it sounds insane whenever I say that I'm grateful for the worst thing that ever happened to me. That's integration work. That's embodying all of life's paradoxes in a way that overcomes fear with love. And I feel like that's, that's my calling in life is to try to help as many people move in that direction as well. And I can, I can see it and I can hear it in you. And I think it's a beautiful thing. Thank you. I was going to add just from something that you said, it triggered this this thought in me. It's that when I was working with my guide for so my psilocybin journey, he sent me an audio recording and it was kind of like a meditation and it was his voice and he was just giving this sort of mantra and I really like the mantra and something that you just said kind of pulled that into my brain. It was the love that you withhold is the pain that you carry. And, and I just like, that was so profound to me. I, I still think about it a lot. And that is so true. Like if I am ever, you know, withholding love for someone or hesitant about getting close to somebody, whether that's a new friend or whatever it is, it's because I carry pain from previous things. So profound. And you reminded me of that. I just wanted to share. Yes. Dr. Stan Groff is a famous LSD researcher in the Czech Republic in the 20th century and was, you know, the godfather of transpersonal psychology. And he would describe psychedelic experiences in terms of condensed experiences. You've probably heard of this. Coexes is what he called them for short. Birth and death also being an example of coexes, and then a whole bunch of them that we have in between. And what I hear you saying is what I like to call a condensed explanation. Somebody who's gone through a condensed experience, like the medicine journey that you've described, they come out the other side with these condensed explanations for things in life that are just so beautiful and so rich and so difficult to thoroughly unpack, but so enjoyable to hear in this like tight little nugget of wisdom. Can you say again what that mantra was? Yes. It's the love that you withhold is the pain that you carry. And this was presented to me by Gabriel Castillo at Finally Detached. That's his business. And so I just wanted to give credit where credit is due. Yeah, that's beautiful. All right. On to question four. What are you creating? Yeah. Oh, I'm always writing. I feel like I've always got my head in my laptop if I'm not out in my garden or in the woods or whatever. But so I'm constantly writing deep dive articles about health, continuing to do that. You know, I'm, I'm fascinated by women's health, fascinated by psychedelics. But right now, another topic that's really interesting to me is the topic of longevity. So what, you know, what causes the aging processes in our body? How can we slow some of these processes so that we have a longer not only lifespan, but longer health span where we're living in health and, and living our best lives, essentially, when we're, you know, 85, 90, whatever, maybe even extending again into the hundreds. So really fascinated about that. 
and working on several articles throughout the fall related to that, but also continuing to work on, you know, topics related to women's health. I have a series out there now on menopause that's on levelshealth.com. Levels is a, you know, biotech company that they give people continuous glucose monitors and those continuous glucose monitors help them work on their metabolic health. And so that's, I've written some menopause articles for that. So really excited about that. And just, you know, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. And people keep asking me, are you going to write another book? And I'm like, I just finished this one. Give me a break. No, I'm kidding. But I, you know, I do want to write another book. I really want to capitalize on the momentum I've created. And I loved the writing process, the research process. So I, I have a few different ideas. I won't throw them at you, but, you know, definitely have some things brewing. That's what I was going to ask. Like, what would a sequel be? Just give me give me one idea. So yeah, I think one idea that I'm really, that's kind of in my heart and that I want to talk about and write about is this idea of how do you decide if you're going to have children, you know, I think it's this question that a lot of people grapple with in, you know, late 20s, 30s, even into their early 40s. How do you make the decision? Because a lot of people are on the fence and, and I was someone who was pretty sure I wasn't going to have kids, but I kind of went through this, I wouldn't say crisis, but it was just more like, I have to make this decision now. It was in my late thirties. I was leaning towards having a hysterectomy to help with endometriosis pain. And it was something I really needed to do. But if, if I were going to, you know, have kids, obviously I needed to figure that out first. So I spent you know, several months kind of digging into this topic and trying to figure that out. And I feel like that information that I learned through that, the research that I did for myself would be valuable to other people because, you know, we live in this world where we don't know what's going to happen. I know it's always been that way, but there's climate change. There's all these things happening. Plus some people just don't have that like oh, I want to procreate instinct. I've never had it, but I still had to think about, am I making the right decision going forward with this? So I've made the decision not to have kids, had that hysterectomy. And again, I didn't even know if I could have kids because of endometriosis, but but I had to make this decision either way and it was complicated. And so I guess I just want to share that knowledge with other people. Well, I think that topic in your hands would be well handled and that anyone would benefit from hearing, you know, a well-rounded integrated perspective on a subject like that. So, you know, hurry up and write that book so that uh, I can get it it to my kids whenever the time comes. Uh, I've I've got, I've got a little bit of time before any of they're going to be making any of those decisions, but I'd be glad to have (laughs) some resources for when that time comes for me. Sure. That brings us to our final question. Q5, who are you really? Hmm. Well, I think I don't think I'm too big of a mystery. I am an easygoing person. I'm a a positive person. Overall, people have called me optimistic to a fault. But that doesn't mean that I want to push toxic positivity on people at all. That's not me. I think, uh, you know, And it doesn't mean that I've never had bad days. I do have bad days. I go through difficult times, but I really lean on resiliency, like concepts of resiliency. I tap into my parasympathetic nervous system, which is the, rather than our fight or flight response, it's our rest and digest response in the body. So we can tap into that through meditation or um, mindfulness practices. So I think back to when my mom, my mom has gone through two different cancer diagnoses 
babies. And I was in the hospital with her for the first round where she was having surgery. We just didn't know what the outcome would be. And, you know, sitting in the hospital and my heart rate rising and I'm panicking and I just had to calm myself down. And to have those tools is really powerful. So I always encourage people to lean into mindfulness practices. But I think those are what really get me through difficult times. But really, in a nutshell, I think I care about the general human experience, our universal things, whatever that may be. And, you know, like, for example, I remember I was doing some work in Croatia and I was I had I was interviewing people who they spoke the language there. I had a photographer who was with me who spoke only French. And then I, I, I speak a little Spanish, but that wasn't involved in the in the trip. And so I, I had only English to work with, but our universal language of just sort of like laughter and smiles and, and things was really pronounced to me. And that kind of was just a cool experience to to see that. So not only laughter, but we share pain, you know, when, when we have a difficult experience, we can all relate to that. And so I'm really tied into the general human experience. But overall, in a nutshell, I would say that I'm just like a happy-go-lucky golden retriever. <laughs> if I were a dog, that's what I would be. <laughs> Floppy ears, running around with my tongue hanging out, big smile. That's me. I see that. I see that in you. Thank you. <laughs> and it's beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. You see my, my resemblance of a golden retriever. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah, you know, they are, they're always smiling. Even whenever they're sad, <laughs> yeah, there's like yeah. a smile on their face, right? You know, absolutely. like they're just genetically hardwired to have a smiling face, right? They are, yes. Yeah. Any final thoughts that you'd like to share with our audience before we conclude our conversation here? Hmm. I think one thing that I did want to share is... The idea of this model of that researchers have come up with to describe what happens during a psychedelic journey and how it can be so beneficial to people. And so I'll quickly explain that. It's called the Rebus model, and you've probably heard of this. It stands for Relaxed Beliefs Under Psychedelics. And what that means in a nutshell is that so in normal states of consciousness, our minds are pretty rigid. And when we're young, they're really flexible. Uh, they're entropic because we haven't really formed our beliefs about the world around us or how it operates or, or the beliefs about ourselves. We're still forming our identity. So it's really flexible as kids. But as we get into adulthood, some of those pathways start to solidify, again, pathways of how we think about ourselves and the world around us. So that, you know, brings on that rigidity. So these researchers, it was Robin Carhart-Harris and Carl J. Friston, they're doctors, I should have used doctor in front of their names. But anyway, so they came up with this great model, the Rebus model, but they came up with this analogy to describe it. And what it what they said in this research article that I read was that, so in, in normal states of consciousness, our brains are in that rigid state. So we can think of it as like a frozen pond. Your brain is like a frozen pond. And then when you are on a psychedelic, so this is your brain on drugs, right? Um, but this, this pond becomes thought. So when it's rigid and it's frozen, if you tried to drop a new belief on it, like in the form of a rock, let's just say, so we're dropping this rock on this frozen pond, it doesn't gain entry, right? So if you're trying to change the beliefs about, that you have about yourself or the world around you, it's hard to do in a normal state of consciousness because that rock just hits the ice and doesn't do anything. But if we have this thawed pond because we're on psychedelics in this altered state of consciousness where our minds become 
flexible and entropic, almost like that childlike state. And we take up a leaf and we try to drop it in that pond. It gains entry and causes a ripple effect. And I just really love sharing that analogy because I think it helps explain and take some of that mystery out of, well, why does this work for things like PTSD, depression, anxiety, etc.? So I just wanted to share that. So psychedelics make your mind into a slushy pond is what I'm yes. taking away from that one. Perfect. Yeah, you're just a slush. <laughs> All right. Well, that's Jen Chesick, everyone. It's been a pleasure. Doc out.